Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. 2023 was a big year for our podcast team. We rebranded from Courier Pigeon to Looped in Chicago and had the privilege of covering stories that reflect the strength and wonders that Chicago and our community have to offer. Like Turtel Only, founder of the Black Age of Comics. So there is a, a uh, uh, fan loyalty in the comic book industry that's outrageous. It's it's almost like if you could only, you know, if you were going to have a hamburger, it could only come from three sources or it's not a hamburger. Not everyone we've spoken to this year lives here or has ties to Chicago, but their work reflects the lives of those who do. Like Dr. Denise Sandoval curator of low writing history. So it's beautiful, badass cars, right? And there's a competition side of it. But I think that other side of the the connection to community and those relationships that often doesn't get highlighted. I'm your host, Ariel Ravenet. And this episode will be a tad different from a regular ones. Today, we'll hear extended interviews from some of our most listened to episodes. They give more background to our guests and expand the conversation from their original episode. Say goodbye to 2023, and let's get looped in, Chicago. Turtel only brings Afrocentric characters to life in independent comics. He's also an adjunct professor of art appreciation and drawing at Harold Washington College in downtown Chicago. Creator of Only Studios, he made the Black Age of Comics a reality and hosts an annual comic book convention under the same name. He was featured in our episode titled The Fight for Truth and Justice in Comics. Turtel not only writes great adventures, but has had many of his own. Here is my extended interview with Turtel. You know, I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, I consider Chicago a good place, obviously, to be an artist and to be a creative person. I attended public school here. I graduated from Calumet a long time ago. You may have heard of a vocalist named Shaka Khan. She was actually a classmate of mine during that time period. And we were kind of like on the point of the spear with the uh, late 60s countercultural movement and then also the emergence of the Black Cultural Revolution. So a lot of my friends back then used to call me a blippy which meant being a black hippie, you know, because I was in both worlds. (laughs) You know, I was kind of precocious. 
you know, I started drawing when I was a little bitty guy, and I was really dedicated. You know, I mean, I'd spend hours trying to understand how to make a pencil do something impressive. So one time I was listening to Shaka talking about how she was doing some background studio work. You know, we're in the lunchroom in high school. And I kind of got jealous. I'm like, well, I'm an artist. Why can't I get a studio job? Well, so, you know, I started asking around. And, you know, back then, ageism was if you were young, go away. Young fella, go away. You haven't paid your dues yet. We don't want to see your portfolio. You got to wait your turn. So I started an artist guild for young artists that wanted to really make the transition from dedicated, talented student to a professional artist. Then that ran into the speed bump of that. If you're talking about making money with art, then you're some kind of sellout. You're not a real artist. You know, well, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I had the kind of childhood where you had to make money, <laughs> you know, yeah. folks, everybody at home had to make money. You had a paper route, you babysat, you did something. So I get to the school of the art Institute. Uh, I, earned a um, BFA in art education there, and I earned a master's in art therapy. I was also in a therapeutic training program at the Michael Reese Medical Center. So based on that training, along with my associates, I was able to practice what later on became called art therapy. So I spent about 12 years as a clinical art therapist, but keep in mind, I always went home to make art. And to me, making art meant all of the above. Comic books, illustration, wearable art, and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess to go, you know, just further than Chicago, how do you think comics have had an impact on American culture overall? Okay, so there was a guy that lived in Chicago that like, came up with Mickey Mouse. You know, the guy was Walt Disney. And that, and that came out of Chicago. Who doesn't know Mickey Mouse? Okay, I was a public school teacher in Chicago. And one of the things that I would notice, if you know anybody that reads comic books, they tend to be kind of avid readers and they tend to be good, higher order thinking skill, cognitive capable people. So usually they get put down as, oh, it's that geeky, nerdy guy. But they should say smart, intelligent guy. Because if you go throughout Chicago public schools when there's a uh, standardized test, the students that are big on reading manga, anime, and comic books see the standardized test as a speed bump in their day. They just nail it and get high test scores because all day they're reading. And recreational reading is a good foundation for, shall we say, more disciplined reading. You know, it kind of goes together. So it's kind of like an active lifestyle enhances uh, your athleticism and your healthiness. So active reading of recreational material does that. And comic books has done that forever. Uh, and so can you tell me more about um, the black age of comics in general? I know you mentioned some of it in the beginning, but really how did it start in Chicago? And um, like, I guess the impact of it. Boy, I guess I should tell the truth, right? <laughs> okay, I won't name names, but I'll just use big terms. You can fill in the blanks. I was uh, on the East Coast at a... Um, company and um, I go in to meet to the executive in charge of acquisitions and new talent and when I walk in he's shocked to see that I'm black mm. I mean he's shocked and when I sit down he says 
do black people read? And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a long interview. You know, the therapist in me is kind of feeling sorry for him because he really believes what he's saying. So I thought the industry needs something so that if somebody black walks in your office, you're not shocked. And so I thought about like when I was young in high school, I'm looking at American Bandstand and James Brown, you know, the godfather of soul, mm. is on there with a flip chart and he's talking about soul music and he's talking about what soul is and what soul is not. And they play a music and they dance a little bit and he's like, yeah, that's got soul. And the, the, no, that doesn't have soul. And I'm thinking, okay, they invented soul music and it became a genre. So I thought, okay, there needs to be a genre in the comic book industry because the way the comic book industry is organized, you have the golden age, which is like what was happening in the late 30s up until the late 40s. Then you have um, a period of flux and, and censorship. And then you have the silver age. And then you have something called the Bronze Age. And so I thought if you come from a black, African, urban, or alternative perspective that puts you in the black age. And so when we say alternative, we mean lifestyle issues, gender-related issues, orientation, politics, you know, save the planet, all these other things that didn't necessarily have a, a home in the market at that time. So I publish and get the legal copyright for my character, Nog, the Protector of the Pyramids. So I go back to the same company. I got to talk to the same person. So this time he says, hey, when black people read science fiction, do they understand what they're reading? So I whip out my book, okay? I'm thinking I can negotiate a licensing deal. Like, yo, you all could get North American rights to the book. I get a certain amount of royalties. I retain the movie rights. I retain the uh, TV rights, you know, the animation rights, the toy rights. And he's like, we don't negotiate. Don't you know who we are? We are blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm thinking, dude, I'm in your office. I didn't get here by accident. Of course I know who you are. But I didn't understand the way the industry operated at that time. So while we're going back and forth, his administrative assistant walks in with a check made out to me for a small amount of money, okay? And it was for my character. And when I flipped the check over, it had this paragraph that if you signed a check, you agreed to the following. And the following was they would own everything you did five years prior to the check, five years post the check, because you only did it because you wanted to be with that company. And they owned all rights. You absolved them from any litigation. So, you know, I'm tearing this thing up in little pieces because I am not signing it. Right in front of him? Oh, yeah. How is, can that be legally binding if it's not? Well, I, it's I, legally I, binding if you sign it. But, like, but you have to check it, right? So there's no copy of that ever? Well, the point is if you sign it, it's gone. There you go. And I appreciate your, your enthusiasm because in the history of the comic book industry, this is average and typical. This was not something special for me. When I went to other companies, I found out 
it even got worse. And so, because, see, the character is the star, not you, not the writer, not the artist. And so the companies know that there's always somebody else that'll take your job. Well, and that's what's so interesting to me. I was doing research on Superman in particular and how those guys sold rights to Superman, like, off the bat. And this, yeah. and they died poor and stuff. And so it just really made me think, like, we love Marvel. We love DC. You know, like, mm-hmm. these are, ah, these big names. Mm-hmm. But, like, what's the incentive then for the artist? If it's, like, you, you did all this, you did all this, and for what? Like, Okay, so let's go back in time. During the Great Depression, if anybody paid you a sandwich to draw, you were happy to get that sandwich. Okay, so the Golden Age benefited from the Great Depression, that you had people with incredible skill sets coming out of World War One and then World War Two that were willing to go with those deals, and that became the standard. Anybody listening to this, look up Jack Kirby and look up how much work Jack Kirby did that you love that you didn't know he invented it and look up his legacy okay and so as a kid when I started looking at Jack Kirby's problems with the publisher he was working with part of me was like well if they can do that to Jack what's gonna happen to me so I developed this other acumen so when you say what's the motivation most artists What goes along with the talent is a desire to get it out in the world. So it's not good enough to just do it and show it to your homeboy and your homegirl and your auntie and your grandmother. You want the world to kind of know about it. And some people's talent is beyond their maturity, meaning beyond their understanding of law and uh, copyrights and their patience to learn about those things. You got to register your copyright. You've got to develop your product. You got to deal with distributors. You've got to deal with printers, you know, and, and if it's a vanity, small publishing company, you still do all the steps that everyone else does. A lot of times I speak on diversity panels at like San Diego Comic-Con or in Chicago C2E2 or at Wizards. And there's always people in the audience that want the mainstream to reflect their um, ideology or their interests or their values. But they're not willing to support small independent companies that are already doing that. Because a lot of times I'll say, if that's what you want to see, go to Artist Alley. There are people doing it right now, and they won't go. It's like they want it to be from the big-time mainstream or not at all. So there is a a, uh, uh, fan loyalty in the comic book industry that's outrageous. It's it's almost like if you could only, you know, if you were gonna have a hamburger, it could only come from three sources or it's not a hamburger. And I think that what people don't understand is how challenging it is to draw three, four, five panels to a page, 25 pages of those panels, each one of them is like a composed work of art. And then you have a storyline going through it And then when someone reads it, their brain, from a cognitive neurological standpoint, their their literary intellectualism is processing, their visual IQ is processing, and then it's got to get integrated into a content that they can relate to. So it's been proven that this is a challenge, and it's a very rewarding challenge. I'm sure it feels tedious, and you know, but it is it it is art at the end of the day. Like yeah, it's powerful. Well, well, how about this one time? 
you know, I was in program with the uh, Art Institute. And at that time, they had an exhibit. They actually had sketchbooks of Michelangelo's. No way. The actual sketchbooks. So, you know, we had to wear the mask over the face and have the, the gloves on, the white gloves. And so we're looking at the work. And, I mean, first of all, you feel like you're looking at something you're not supposed to be able to see, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. this guy was drawing with a wire, silver wire. Into the paper? On, onto the paper. And so I said, wow, you know, like, this looks just like a comic book. Oh, they were through with me. They were like, like sir, do you need to leave? You know, but he's got these muscular figures flying through the air. He's got them, them doing magical feats. Okay, he's got them doing all kind of things. Where do we see that? Like, you know, in comic books. So contemporary mythology and all this. Um, it's a, sometimes it's a matter of scale and packaging. If it's presented in a comic book, it's looked differently than if it's presented in a mural. But it could literally be the same content. And it could literally be the same stylization. And so the comic book, again, a, a uniquely American art form. I mean, everybody does it now. But it's it's like um, a package of ideas that can be presented in a concise format. You can learn more about Only Studios on their website. Just follow the link in the bio of this episode. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, We'll hear more from Dr. Sandoval. Stay tuned. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Listen to every MLB game live. In the deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Subscribe to At Bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Dr. Denise Sandoval, professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at California State University, also studies lowriding. She was originally featured in our episode titled History on Wheels, Cruising Through Lowrider Culture. In this episode, I visited a local lowriding club and heard from those behind the wheel. Dr. Sandoval lent me her knowledge around the historical context of the community for the episode. For some context, Dr. Sandoval grew up 20 miles east of LA and lowriding piqued her interest when it came time for her undergraduate dissertation in 1998. But when she went to research the community, she realized there wasn't much written yet about the culture. She went ahead with her paper based on a few academic journals, magazines, and books on the automotive industry. She was hired right out of college as the first curator of a lowriding exhibit at the Peterson Automotive Museum, giving her an opportunity to meet and speak with people in the community, catalyzing her mission 
to collect their oral history, photos, and artifacts for exhibits to showcase the cultural importance of lowriding. She has curated many exhibits for museums around the country. Her most recent is an exhibit at the Smithsonian. Like it wasn't something that like I saw I would still be doing this, but I think when I started, there wasn't a lot of people, right, sort of looking at lowriding. And I think for me, what was important and I would argue that's very similar in any community, like even where you are out in the Midwest, was, you know, people are using their cars to tell their stories, right, to express their identities, to build communities. And then in particular, like, what does that mean to communities that come from histories of marginalization, that experience segregation and discrimination, right? So for me, like in Los Angeles, I thought it was a, obviously a perfect sort of canvas to look at the history of black and brown folks out here in LA, right? Or how we don't have access to museums. So the streets become our museum spaces or parks become our museum spaces and car shows. So yeah, and I think the other side too is that obviously for Los Angeles, that would probably be very similar was looking at ways that, you know, low riders also experience discrimination because of how they low ride and how they look. So it's the stereotyping of looking at them as gangsters on wheels. But for me, I think the more exciting part was people didn't realize that out here in LA, like low riders in the East Side also were very inspired what was happening during the Chicano movement and the art movement. And so as more murals start coming in the community, like more murals start appearing on cars. And, and then lowriders always have a long history of doing philanthropic work of like, whether it be for Toys for Tots or, so I think like that was the history. People I think were unaware of sort of that, the way they connect to their own communities and give back to their communities as well. So it's beautiful, badass cars, right? And there's a competition side of it. But I think that other side of the, the connection to community and those relationships that often doesn't get highlighted. Absolutely. And I really love everything that you just said, because that's actually like, we're going to go into a lot of that with the questions I wrote. So I am so excited to hear and pick your brain. And so, you know, kind of going back to what you're saying, uh, celebrating Chicano culture has come up so much, you know, when discussing lowrider low cars. So yeah. could you just to begin, could you define what Chicano culture is? Well, Chicano culture is you know, born here in the United States, but like of Mexican origin, right, sort of of your family. But Chicano culture is also not something bound by blood or ethnicity, because I've heard, I've seen people like white folks and non-Mexican Americans who consider themselves Chicano because where they grew up around sort of Mexican Americans. So I think like Chicano is you know, obviously where you're born and culture that influences you on one side, but you could also argue that it's also become aesthetics, right? Like in pop culture, like the images of Mexican-American culture that we find in a lot of the Hollywood movies or today, like in social media, like I would say there's like a lot of celebration of like Pachuco culture, right? That is also sort of the roots of Chicano culture and, you know, Cholo culture as well. But, you know, the term Chicano really becomes redefined during the 1960s, during the Mexican-American civil rights movement known as the Chicano movement. So just whereas the Black Power movement was taking a term like Black that had a negative connotation, they redefined it to mean empowerment, right? Self-determination, as well as self-affirmation of our culture. So Chicano was also a term that 
actually had existed in the early 20th century in Mexican-American communities. And some of that history of folklorists have traced it to like border towns. And so it kind of meant like a lower class Mexican. Um, so it was a term that did exist here in, in the 20th century, but definitely like the pachucos, you also see use of that word there as a more positive sort of reaffirmation. So yeah, so I think like the Chicano movement sort of really redefined the term of how we think about it now as like political um, and also tied to social activism and the fight for social justice. And all that you're saying all about like, you know, this culture, you know, these people, how does this then intersect with remodeling vintage cars to become lowrider and how it's built, you know, this lowrider community? So obviously lowrider culture is part of automotive history in the United States. So, you know, the, the first really big car custom culture is really the hot rods, right? So that was like in the 1930s. So I think like this very American idea of Definitely, I think that's United States, right? Of like car representing people's identity, primarily for most of that history was men, right? Of creating sort of culture and using cars to express themselves. You can even see that in the present, like with the Fast and Furious, right? So hot rodding then I think was interesting because it was that example of taking a car that was built to sort of look the same and modifying it and making it unique, right? And creating sort of a subculture, a subculture space. So low riding sort of comes after that. So where hot rods were built, you know, for speed, raised off the ground, low riding took it like in the opposite aesthetics in the 40s, which was sort of like lowered cars um, and going low and slow. So I think what's really interesting is that lowrider culture is part of United States automotive history and how people begin to sort of use their cars to build community and express sort of their unique identity, right? So it's kind of like you're looking at the car, you're looking at the person, right? You know, to me, I think it's more important of thinking about if your car symbolizes you or your community like what does it mean particularly for me for black and brown folks right of having that canvas right to express themselves and you know a car allows you mobility out of neighborhood right and taking your your culture your identity to the streets which i mean and they'll share like sometimes you're getting racist stops by cops and all of and also it was illegal to have your car lower than the bottom portion of your of your wheel rim so you could get tickets. Um, but I think what's more importantly is that it becomes sort of like a symbol of pride, right? Of, of pride. And I think like we can't sort of, like I started thinking of this about a lot recently. And I think I owe a lot to like black culture and black cultural activists of thinking about how we really politicize joy right and celebration and that is also political right particularly for marginalized communities whether it be lgbtq women i mean just pick a group right the way that we use joy to affirm ourselves to build community and it's it's political right when you live in a society where there's so many groups and people trying to strip that joy or is labeling our lives you know, in our bodies as perverse, right? Or things to be controlled, right? Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Um, and this is like, because I'm similar in the sense of like, I love, I think having conversations about things, but connecting it back to history, I think is so important, right? Because like nothing is ever that new. Everything is just kind of relabeled that we're seeing these days in the sense of like, 
you can always look back to the past and be like, okay, what was the similar thing that was happening then? But also it's yeah. great to see like the growth and whatnot. And so I really appreciate all the connections you gave connecting with the past and with the present and also to see where lowrider is going in the future. I think that's Yeah, is I mean the future, exciting. like the future, and that's I think a good thing to talk about, like the future just to sort of end. To me, the future, like low riding is at a height that I've never seen and everybody I talk to, they also have never seen it. And so that's exciting, right? And I but I think the other part is like to see what work is coming out of it. And I know out here in California, that work has been around dismantling the anti-cruising laws. And we're in Sacramento trying to make that happen. So I think like that is what's important, right? Of like, we need to take away that stigma of criminalizing it. But I think, you know, museum exhibits, all these shows, social media, all of that is I think we're at a better place of really educating people of, you know, this is our culture, this is who we are. And, you know, um, I see like that negative image is, is really like in the rear view mirror. You can view Dr. Sandoval's latest traveling exhibit of photographs titled Corazon y Vida, Lowrider Culture in the United States at the Smithsonian, or look to see when it's coming to a museum near you. Twenty twenty three has reached its end, but our stories about Chicago will continue on January eighth. From all of us here at Looped In, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Ariel Ravenay, edited by Jim Hinky, Cooper Mall, and myself. Craig Schwab is our station's news director. Byron Kaplan is managing producer of National News Podcasts. And a special thanks to all the people who have lent us their stories and voices this year. To see photos and videos of all we've covered, check out our Instagram at WBBM Podcasts or at WBBM News Radio. We'll get you looped in back here in three weeks. See you next year. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.